Open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 20. We've been in our study on things to come. This is the 12th uh, Bible study. Last week, we looked at the millennial kingdom. The next major event is a great white throne judgment. But there is a brief period of time between the millennial kingdom and the white throne judgment that some very significant things happen. And uh, we want to look at them here tonight in Revelation chapter 20. So shortly after millennium, God judge, judges the unsaved of all eternity. They'll be judged according to their works for the amount of judgment they face for all eternity. Uh, eternity as if hell itself an eternal flame in hell is not enough. Uh, the very wicked of the world, whoever you might name, will not be receiving the same judgment as others. Uh, but it will, be, uh, it will be a very somber time. Now, it is not a judgment whether or not people are going to heaven or hell. That, that, that's already been decided at that point in time. Everyone at the great white throne judgment is unsaved, facing eternal condemnation. Now, while you have your finger here in Revelation 20, just for introduction, turn back to Isaiah chapter number nine. Because in Isaiah chapter nine, the prophet explains that during the millennium, Christ will order and establish his eternal kingdom. So notice Isaiah chapter nine, verse six is very familiar. We read it at Christmas, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Notice verse number seven. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So that's a prophetic statement regarding uh, this ordering of, uh, of the, the millennial kingdom, establishing the transition into eternity. And so what we're going to see tonight is Satan is loosed for a period of time. Satan then is cast into his eternal judgment. The earth is purged with fire and that leads into the final judgment of the unsaved. And so tonight we're going to examine this brief time, sort of set the stage, and next week we'll look at the great white throne. So look in Revelation chapter 20, verse number two. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more 
till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. That's what we're going to be considering, being loosed a little season. Now look down at verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what's going to happen after that thousand year reign that's in perfect peace and perfect rule and just and yet Psalm says Christ will rule with a rod of iron. Well, the first thing that will happen is Satan will be released. He's been sentenced. He's been incarcerated, if you want to put it that way, for a thousand years. And he'll be released for a span of time, a little season, verse number three says. Well, what will he be doing? Well, the Bible says in verse number eight that he's going to be deceiving the nations. He shall go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. The phrase the nations is just a general Bible term for Gentiles. You find it that way over 90 times throughout the scripture. And what it says is Satan's deception will be very effective because uh, he will have worldwide influence, the Bible says, from the four quarters of the earth. So no nation will be exempt. There'll be people from every people group, every nation, every tribe, every language who will be deceived and follow Satan. And it, the number of followers will be amazing because it says, verse number eight, they'll be as the sand of the sea. Now, we, we, you know, sometimes we're, we're not thinking as maybe as clearly as we ought to think. And we say, wait a second. After a thousand years of perfect rain, he's loose for a few, a, a little season, a few months, a few weeks. And he's able to deceive that number of people. Where did all those people come from? How did he do that? Well, remember, folks, Satan has always been a liar. And as such, his favorite tool to use even today is deception. Why does somebody go out and drink alcohol when you don't have to be a rocket science, a scientist to see destroyed lives and ruined homes and people who are decimated by that? Why do people go out and smoke dope and, and do drugs? Why do people get involved in immorality? Why do even God's people think they can get away with sin? Because Satan's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. John 8, 44, year of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
So he's not, he doesn't have to change his tactics. He has perfected them since the Garden of Eden when he started creating doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say that? I don't think God really, do you think God really meant that? And his tactics have never changed. So he's effective. Who will he be deceiving? Well, remember, though everyone who comes into the millennium will be a born-again believer, you have a thousand years of people having children and their children having children and their children having children. And guess what? They're going to be born with the same Adamic flesh nature that you and I were born with. Same nature their parents were born with. And so, obviously, even though the rule is a righteous rule, there's going to be a lot of conformity, but maybe not as much conversion. And there will be, through the thousand years, numbers uh, of the world will be totally repopulated after the decimation of the tribulation. So these people uh, who live under righteous rule will be deceived. Secondly, I want you to notice this is his last ditch effort, if you want to put it that way, to continue what he had said he would do in Isaiah chapter 14. Before the world was created, before man was ever in the garden, Isaiah records for us Lucifer's rebellion. Isaiah 14, 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? For thou art cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart. I bolded that because in my mind, even God even knows the heart of Lucifer. He knew what Lucifer was going to do, even though God had created him as a beautiful cherub. What did Lucifer say in his heart? I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So here he is. One last shot. And he's going to give it all he's got. So verse number nine says that he goes up to the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. Now, I personally, and in my study, I believe this is uh, at least conservatively fairly accurate. It's talking about the land of Palestine and obviously the beloved city would be Jerusalem. So he is, he is going up against the center of Christ's government, sitting on the throne of David, to overthrow God, he thinks, I'm glad we know the end of the story. He fails miserably. But he is one last time trying to get this rebellion to work that failed before when he was cast out of heaven. And thirdly, what happens is the Bible says that God purges the earth in fire. It says the end there, verse nine, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. I'd never really thought about that clearly. I knew it to be a fact. Why? Why would God devour the earth in fire? What is this teaching us? Well, 
There are several passages of scripture that tell us that this earth is going to pass away. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So Jesus even said, this earth is going to pass away as you know it now. Why? What, what is God saying to us? Well, ever since Genesis 3, when God, God's judgment came on Adam's sin, God placed a curse on this earth. And that curse has to be lifted. So for the last effects of that curse to be removed, God purges the earth before we move into his eternal kingdom. It's like he's pushing the reset button. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem as well. And so God purges the earth. Well, what is this teaching us? Well, it teaches us, first of all, that environment doesn't change anyone. The inhabitants on this earth are going to be under a perfect government. None of us are under a perfect government. For a thousand years, perfect rule, perfect ruler, perfect justice. <clears throat> but no matter how good the environment is, it does not change man's wicked heart. You know, government often says, well, change people's environment, they'll be better people. No, no, it never happens that way. They have to be changed from the inside, be made a new creation by Christ before they change. So betterment is not the same. And this really deals theologically with modernness in the social gospel, where it's just educate and give them clean water and good health care, and then they'll become Christians. No, all of those things can be tools to share the gospel. I'm not against any of them. But you can give somebody the best education, the best environment, the best uh, medical care, and they can still be lost and go to hell. The reality is everybody has to come to a conversion by salvation. They have to be regenerated by Jesus Christ. So apart from understanding the depravity of the human heart, there's no way to understand how that massive population could rebel against Christ when they've been under his benevolent, gracious rule for a thousand years, but environment doesn't change anybody. The second lesson we see is that just because somebody knows about God doesn't mean the same thing that they know God. I, religious people are the hardest people to share the gospel with. You know, I've talked to many Roman Catholics about the gospel and their need to be, put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. You know, what the, the common answer is, oh, I do that. But then why do you have to do this and have to do that and have to do this and you still aren't absolutely certain you're going to heaven? They're trying to work their way to heaven. The Jewish people, works religion is a religion of anything apart from Jesus Christ where I'm depending on me. But the work of Christ is done. And so uh, salvation is absolute dependence on Christ alone and what he did on the cross. So every person alive during the millennium will know about Christ. But they must personally choose to receive his salvation. Thirdly, this shows us 
that there always have been and always will be tears among the wheat. Jesus taught that in the parable, Matthew chapter 13. In the early stages, you can't tell the difference unless you're a very experienced farmer. They look a great deal alike. And we don't know men's hearts, but God does. I'm still thinking about that quote I gave you Sunday morning. John Newton said three things I'll be surprised at when I go to heaven. I don't have it written in front of me, so I won't, I won't say it exactly. But he said, I'll be surprised at the people there I didn't expect to see there. I'll be surprised at the people I expect to see there that aren't there. And I'll be surprised that I'm even there at all. What was he talking about? I'm nothing in myself apart from Christ. And uh, so there always have been tares among the wheat. And lastly, it teaches us that rebels can appear to be very good until they think they got a chance. I've watched that in Christian schoolwork. Kids don't give you any trouble. They don't break any rules. As soon as they graduate, they go out and live like the devil. You say, I I didn't think they were a rebel. No. Rebels can be internal for a long time. And and they can conform. And I believe that that's what the Bible's teaching us during the millennium. Yes, it'll be a wonderful time. We'll be able to serve the Lord based on our faithfulness now and many things. I mean, we're going to see a thousand years that are going to be amazing. But the reality is just because people conform does not mean that they are truly born again and changed. And and that's what's being shown here. Uh, Let me give you a Bible illustration. You remember a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot? For three years, he was with Christ. You ask anybody, look at the disciples. You know, there's Judas there. Look at him. Man, he's he's good with the money. He's always there. Yeah. And he was a traitor who betrayed the Lord. So, you know, by the way, there's a real lesson there, mom and dad. Don't be so excited about conformity as much as real change in the attitudes and lives of your children. You can make them conform, but you also can be creating a monstrosity that'll break your heart later one day. So anyway, Satan will be released from his thousand years Secondly, we see Satan's final battle will end in absolute and utter defeat. We already referenced it, but uh, at the end, the Lord purges the earth. Now, some people get this battle confused with the battle spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And... uh, I just encourage you to do some comparisons there. There's no way the battle from Ezekiel 38 and 39 is this same battle because the one in Ezekiel 38 and 39 culminates in the battle of Armageddon that we read about uh, two weeks ago in in Revelation chapter 19. But Gog and Magog are sort of like a generic general term being used here to refer to all Christ rejectors of the millennium who come from the four corners of the earth and they will be destroyed. But lastly, what happens is finally and with finality, Satan will be cast into his eternal judgment. Notice verse number 10. 
And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. He will finally get what he deserves. Forever and ever and ever. Notice that all three persons of Satan's entourage are involved. The Antichrist and the false prophet have already been bound for a thousand years. The Bible doesn't say that they're released for the brief period of time. Only Satan is, but then uh, Satan is cast back and they face the three together, face their eternal judgment. I just want to touch on something. I'm not going to develop this fully, but understand that death and eternal death is not the same as annihilation. There are many false teachers that, for whatever reason, cannot allow themselves to conceive that God's judgment will be eternal, so they morph their belief system into there being some kind of end to it. I mean, even men that at one time preached a very true gospel are changing their tune. I'm not going to name any names, but the point is that I don't know why someone would do that. Uh, because the, the Bible is very clear. Satan and the false prophet and the beast will be tormented Day and night, notice there at the end of verse 10, forever and ever. That's very clear. That's very emphatic. It is an eternal judgment. There is no purging and then it's over or a disappearance from existence. It will be day and night forever. I don't, I'm not gleeful about that. That's a sobering thought. Very sobering. But if that's not true, we have to be consistent now. If that's not true, if judgment is not eternal without end, then God is not eternal without end. Or our eternal life is not eternal without end. It's the same word. It's the same truth. If one is true, the other is true. If God is eternal, and he is, he's never had a beginning, he never has an end. If the life that Christ gives us through his uh, redemption on the cross, through what he did on the cross on our behalf is not everlasting, then judgment is not everlasting. But if God is eternal and the life that we have in Christ is eternal, then this judgment is eternal as well. 1 Timothy 1.17, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. There it speaks of Christ being the eternal king. Matthew 25.46 and these shall go away into everlasting punishment. 
but the righteous to life eternal. So Satan and his emissaries, the Antichrist, the beast, will face an eternal, unending, unending, forever and ever judgment at the hand of Almighty God. And next week, we'll look at God's judgment on the unsaved who are without Christ. A sobering thought that I challenge our hearts to be faithful, to do all we can to get the gospel out while there's time. Things to come. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts and challenge us with the reality of what we learn that we would live for you today. We have no control over the future, but we have opportunities today. Help us to capture them. Help us to take advantage of them. Help us to live them for your honor and glory. Lord, there are some truths in the scriptures that sort of are difficult for our human sensibilities to acknowledge but help us to remember the word of God is true. Our hearts are not always in line with your word. And when our feelings and your word are in conflict, we must ask you to bring us to a point of understanding and stand firmly on your revealed truth. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for faithful people. Lord, I pray you'd use your word in our lives, for it's your name we pray. Amen.